I want to tell you about a couple of realizations that uh, Tim and I specifically had about a month ago. But first, I want to give you a little bit of background, okay? When we merged uh, two churches just over two years ago, happy two-year anniversary, by the way. We kind of missed that one. We're just kind of getting used to this. So, uh, uh, but when we did that, we adopted um, the language of the mission of what was Foothills Community Church then. It's kind of a solid place to operate from. But from the beginning, we knew eventually that Redemption Hill Church would need uh, to form its own unique mission. We have our own specific calling. We're not simply the combination of two former churches, but we are one church planted here for a specific purpose. But we knew that we needed time. We needed time to get to know one another, and we needed time to iron out some of the ways we were going to minister. You know, we all had an idea about what this was going to look like, but you can't really know until you're in it. And so we've taken that time to form a new identity and, uh, as, as Redemption Hill Church. So we had several conversations back then about reworking our mission someday, okay? And uh, really, we've been kind of going full throttle for about three years, really, because it took about a year for us to prepare for the merge that came, and then two years after that. And as you recall, just a few months after we merged, a fire broke out in Santa Rosa that just kind of changed the trajectory of everything, and that's all to say, we, we believe that that day and that time has come to articulate what it is that Redemption Hill is here for. It's been two years, and I hope you agree that that sense of kind of them is gone, and that we are one church, it's us, we are Redemption Hill now. And so we feel like it's right to, as we prayerfully pursue this direction, uh, to, to consider what, what it is that God has. And so God has been stirring us and, and giving us specifics about how it is that we are to advance the kingdom of God here. So we've been praying and sharing and asking for input, and we're, we're asking that you be there next Sunday at a congregational meeting where we're going to explain a little bit more about what God has been leading us into. Uh, but, and we're excited about what God is clarifying. It's a it's an exciting time. The phrase that we've been looking at, all of Christ in all of life for all the world, is the seed from which the, whatever the language of our new mission is will grow out of. All of Christ in all of life for all the world. So that's kind of the backstory. So back to this realization that we had a month ago. Tim and I have felt convicted about the pace at which we are living and leading. We've been wrestling with this, and as we were wrestling with this, uh, we returned to our distinctives, those things that make us us at Redemption Hill, and the very last distinctive at that time was called simplicity, and here's what it reads. I think we may even have it um, up on the screen if we can, but here's what it says. We fight for simplicity in our programming to allow time for disciples to be faithful to Christ in every area of life home, work, neighborhood, etc. Therefore, we strive to only plan corporate programs and events designed to fulfill our mission. And as we read those distinctives over, we realized two things. One, we both felt like this simplicity distinctive not only didn't describe our lives and mindset, but that didn't really describe our church family either. Because our pace and our priorities can often imitate the world, right? I mean, life in Sonoma County is lived at a hurried pace. 
This isn't just because of the financial pressures due to the cost of living, but it's, it's indicative of a general unrest and kind of this subterranean idolatry that chases things like professional accomplishment or perfect parenting or other impossible things. And that hurry or that, that pace in Sonoma County, it costs us things. It costs us the ability to have an undistracted soul before the Word of God and spending time with Him. It can cost us um, having a, a home that is a place of, of joyful and meaningful discipleship. It can cost us face-to-face -face relationships where we, we are known and we, we know other people in a way that's beyond what, whatever uh, technological friendships offer. It costs our church family by diverting time and resources away from fruitful relationships and future ministry. It's interesting, we've had a few families move away in the last few months to just different places, and each of them noted there's just a different pace of life where they are. It's slower and more, more methodical. And I think because busyness is our native air, we just don't realize what we're breathing in all the time. And so as odd as this sounds, to slow down, to look people in the eye, to have people over to your home, and to take notice of people and be available to them, these are the things that may be the most noticeable and attractive practices that differentiate us from the world around us. That was the first thing we realized. The second thing we realized is that the order of our distinctives is almost backwards. We were in that season of life where we were just thinking about the structure of the church and the organization of the church and all those things. And so our very first distinctive is a shepherd leader team. Our second one is gospel-driven corporate worship. Those are the first two. The last three, and again, these aren't necessarily in order of importance, but I think they were reflective of kind of where our heads were at. The final three were family worship or family discipleship, prayer, and dead last, interestingly enough, was simplicity. Last week, Tim preached on the necessity of abiding in Christ. Do you remember that? Out of John 15? And he shared how our relationship with God is essential to everything. It's the engine of our Christian life. And we captured this with the phrase, all of Christ. Well, there's a little phrase in that simplicity distinctive that I read a minute ago that explains why we try to fight for it. And it says that we do that to, quote, allow time for disciples to be faithful to Christ in every area of life. And that sparked a question in us, which is, what does it look like to be faithful in every area of life, to be faithful to Christ in every area of life? And what if our church went further than just avoiding cluttering up people's schedules to solely focusing on helping them follow Christ in every aspect of life? Hence the focus of this morning's sermon in the phrase, in all of life. Now that phrase, what do we mean by that? We mean joyfully following Jesus everywhere. It means that every context of life is affected and shaped by our relationship to Jesus. It means that we are learning to abide in Him everywhere we go. Now this might be the kind of thing that a lot of followers of Jesus would agree with at first blush, like, Jesus, Lord, yeah, sure, you know. But when you get into the nitty-gritty of things sometimes, and I don't know about you, but I feel this way at times, we don't always know how to follow him 
or we aren't always willing to follow Him. The what to do is really solid in our minds, right? But sometimes the how is a bit shaky. So how do I have a thriving personal relationship with Jesus? How do I faithfully shepherd my kids and my spouse? How should I receive and give in the context of the ministry of the church? How can I be a gospel influence on my work and in my community? How do I interact with those who don't know Jesus? How is my day-to-day work related to my life with Jesus? How, 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 how? Those are the kinds of questions that we want to focus our efforts towards. Because God uses ordinary discipleship in normal people's day-to-day lives to accomplish eternal things. So, the task for this morning is to see where it is that this all-of-life idea is found in Scripture. Okay, If we're going to say something this broad and this generic and this all-encompassing, we need to make sure that it's coming from God's Word. And so I'd like to show you three things this morning that support This idea that that every context of our lives is an atmosphere in which Jesus is Lord and in which we can learn to love and serve Him. So, where are we going? Those three things are, first, who is Jesus and what has He commanded? Okay, we'll look at the Great Commission. Number two, walking with Jesus and an integrated life. Number three, Jesus' final assessment of what the well-lived life is. So we're going to start with who Jesus is and what he's commanded. We're going to read. We're kind of going to be all over the scripture this morning, but this first point is solidly out of Matthew 28. So we're going to read that. Why don't you stand, if you're physically able, in reverence for God's word, and I'll read to us Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Here's what it says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can be seated. The first way that we see that Christ intends for our lives to be, uh, or our following him is, is intended to be in every aspect of life, is right here in the Great Commission, is what it's called. See, the risen Jesus has laid out the scope of his authority and the extent of his role in this, in this text. And I want you to look at verse 18 because it's a preface to everything that comes before this command is given. Verse 18, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that means that the authority that you and I exercise in running our lives is a part of the authority that Jesus is claiming here. He prefaces this great commission with his authority so that we hear his words in a certain way, right? So that we would approach what he's going to say next with a sense of submission. Because if Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, 
it would be wise for us to listen to him, wouldn't it? That's quite a preface. The one with all authority is about to give a command, and the command is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Have you heard the Great Commission as a divine command? Of all the things that tug and pull on you today, right now, in your headspace, hear the divine command of the one who has all authority. Over your boss's voice asking you to serve more overtime. Over your children's pleas to be involved in more sports and activities. Over your financial advisor's input about what is going to be required to reach your goals. Over your kids' teacher's request for volunteers. Hear the divine command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Do you see the connection with the phrase, in all of life? Because Jesus Christ is Lord of all, he is Lord over all our lives, right? Doesn't that make sense? As one author states, there isn't a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. How we think about the person of Jesus will determine the extent to which he is invited into our lives or the extent to which he is Lord over our lives. So if he's a really good moral teacher, then his claim on our lives really is only by invitation. And he's one of really you know, a lot of different good teachers, right? But if he's the risen son, if he's eternal and divine, if he is risen and coming again, the fundamental purpose of all creation, then his claim over our lives is total. He is Lord over our thoughts and desires. He is Lord over our personal spending. He is Lord over our sexual habits. He is Lord over our work ethic. He is Lord over our relationships. He is Lord over our plans. He is Lord over our homes and our parenting. He is Lord over our neighborhood. He is Lord over our intellectual efforts and our margin and our hobbies and our friendships and our attitudes and our role in the family and our words and our career paths and our vocational integrity and our binge watching and our tweets and our posts and our kids' sports and our dietary habits. He is Lord of all things. And that matters when we're asking the question, what do we do as a church? How do I spend my life? Because if he is Lord over all these things, then, then we don't just explore options, right? We, we submit those areas of life to him. That's who Jesus is. And the, what Jesus has commanded, it says... To make disciples of all nations is kind of the main thrust of the passage, and he explains how that happens by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, introduce them to me, welcome them into our family through baptism, then teach them everything I've commanded you and help them to learn how to do it. That's all. <laughs> That's all I'm asking you to do. Now, of course, that task is not... Is not the task of one individual, but of an entire church family, right? God empowers us to do that. And as Lord of all, he is going to help his church to follow him. But the scope of that command is, is wide and broad. And this is what Paul understands later when he says in Colossians 1, 
28 to 29, he says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I love how Paul describes one of his co-workers, Epaphras, in chapter 4, verse 12 of Colossians. He describes him as a servant of Christ Jesus who greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers for what? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You see, Paul and Epaphras and these guys understood the scope. They understood that he is Lord of all and that his command is to to make disciples of all nations, which is from the very first time that you introduce someone to Jesus. To the saint who's been following Christ for 60 years, continuing to understand. That's the scope. And that's why we say that it's our desire as a church, all of Christ, in all of life, because he is Lord of all. And he's laid out this command of the Great Commission. Now let's look at the second way that we see this in all of life idea in Scripture. Now we're going to be all over the place in the Bible, and for those of you note takers, you can rest easy. Okay, I put these passages down on there. You don't have to scramble to write them all down or anything. Just the point of this morning is to see the forest. Okay, so don't get hung up on a, a small detail. Try to see the bigger picture. The second thing we want to do to defend this idea of in all of life is is look at how the New Testament talks about uh, the life of the Christian. It describes it as walking, and it puts it forward as this life that's integrated in different ways. So it's not a hobby, it's a lifestyle. And we know this because of this language of walking, or it's a continual way of life. Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Ephesians 4.1, therefore a prison of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Philippians 1 says something similar in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1, Paul prays for them so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What does it mean to walk worthily of the gospel or walk worthy of God? It certainly doesn't mean that you're going around and and living in a way that really impresses God and says, wow. Take note of Jerry down there. He's really killing it this week. He's walking really worthy. So I'm going to offer my gospel to him and offer my Savior to him. And that, that's, not what it's, that's not what it means, obviously. It's not earning some kind of uh, position with God. But it does mean that there's a, there's a corresponding relationship between what it means to identify as a Christian and the life that you live. There's a, there's a way that those things correspond So that I can live my life or walk with Christ in such a way that corresponds to my identity as his son and as his child and as a follower of his. It doesn't mean I have to impress him. It means that that because I'm his kid, I will live a certain way. Does that make sense? And so what is this manner of life? What does this walking worthy actually look like? Well, mature disciples will know that it's more than just learning things, right? Quoting verses or things like that. You can know about the will of God, but not necessarily do it. And so maturity is marked by applying what you know and and living out your faith and personalizing 
some, the commands of Christ. The generic command has met the concrete of your real life, is what it means. Your faith is practiced. It's not framed and hanging on the wall kind of a thing. It's, it's a day-to-day reality. Here's a few descriptions of what it means to actually walk in this mature way. This is Romans 12, 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Did you hear that? That by testing you may discern, meaning the faith is actually applied in your specific life so that you know how to take the promises of God or the promises of the gospel or the reality of being his son or daughter and have them change the way that you live before other people. And that takes practice and testing and discernment. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says something similar. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Did you hear that again? Who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. So it's again, people who understand the gospel, they understand things about scripture, not all of it, but some of it, and they've wrestled and worked it into their life in such a way that it's visible and it corresponds to the gospel. Now, how far do Christ's commands reach into our lives? What does Jesus really expect of me? And this is where I'd like to introduce you to an image that might help us see what we're after here at Redemption. Okay? This image uh, there, we'll, we'll use the phrase holistic discipleship. And I know by using the word holistic, some of you are panicking already, but it's okay. Okay? Uh, I understand there's an aversion to that word sometimes, but it can, it, and, and the reason is it can sometimes refer to some like earthly solution to what's really a spiritual problem, right? But I risk using the word holistic because it really captures what we're after. The word means to consider the whole, not merely the parts. Okay, so when you're acting, interacting with a person, you're, you're interacting with a physical body and a mind and a soul all at the same time, right? It's never one of those three things. Because a person is always all of those. And so holistic discipleship is trying to look at what the total call of Christ is in one snapshot. Does that make sense? Not thinking of it as like bowling lanes or something where everything is in its own little category, in its own little slot, but looking at the whole thing together. And we wanted to bring that together by looking at the five different aspects of our lives, our hearts, our homes, our church, our community, our vocation. When we feel like those things together really make up an overwhelming majority of our lives. So if faith is going to show up in our life, it's going to show up in, in those settings, in those contexts, right? Does that make sense? And as we look at these various contexts and following Jesus, we find that they're integrated or they're connected. They have overlap. They're more like a web. And they affect one another. So let me show you that. From Scripture. I'll see if this thing's working. If not, I'll just have to lean on the good people. Okay, there we go. So, 
last week, Tim taught out of John 15, right? And John 15, verse 5 says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this means that our heart or our life with God really is connected to everything else that we're doing. If we don't have a heart for God, if we don't have a life, he says, you can't do anything apart from me. And so there's a connection between our heart and the way that we do our job, our heart and the way that we live at home. There's a connection between our hearts and the church. Listen to Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What would we do about a hard and unbelieving heart? It says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what does that mean? That means that our, the condition of our hearts is related to our church. And part of the task of the church is to help one another break up the hardening effect of sin so that our hearts are kept. There's a connection between the two. If we keep looking at this, there's a connection between our hearts and the community. I mean, listen to Paul, the way he talks in Romans 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. About what? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What is his heart torn up about? People who don't know Jesus. There's a connection between our hearts and the community, the people who are lost. And we can't operate in that, that little quarantine section of our lives on community without our hearts being involved. You keep going. There's a connection from our home to the church and from our home to the community. We see in the qualifications for an elder, there's some really interesting things. It's not, you know, Paul doesn't say, well, you've got to organize a lot of things really well. You've got to get a certain degree from a certain place. You've got to be a good communicator, you know. He actually lays out really ordinary things in what it means to be qualified to be a leader in the church. And you know where he looks? 1 Timothy 3, 4. An elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Or it goes on in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. So guess what? The church is connected to how we're living at home. Right? And leaders in the church need to have a certain reputation amongst the community that's around them so that the, Christ, the name of Christ isn't brought, there's no shame that's brought to him, okay? So our home is connected to those things. How about the church and the community? Is there a connection there? Listen to John chapter 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 17, 20 to 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
That means that the, the quality and the nature and the character of our church, if it's loving and unified, will actually feed our witness in the community. Those things are connected. It's an apologetic for the gospel. Our life together, those things are so strongly connected. Think about your job. You think, well, there's surely not a connection between our vocation in our hearts. Listen to Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So your job is connected to the quality and the condition and the state of your heart. Your job is also connected to the community and to the church, if you could believe this. In 1 Thessalonians 4, listen to what Paul says. He says, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands and we instructed you, why? Why is he so insistent that they work hard, that they're diligent? so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Work hard at your jobs because it's related to your witness in the community. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Your job, income, caring for your basic needs, is related to your home. And so what we see is that these things are connected. Now, the point is not that you remember what each of those lines represents, but the point is that the Christian life is an integrated life. These things are connected with one another, and they actually support and reinforce one another as we live them. You could keep going, and you could add a billion lines to that, that uh, graphic, but this is all to say that following Christ is meant to affect every aspect of our lives, and we can't separate those from one another. And this is really what our world wants our faith to be. As you think about the, read articles in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, all these places about people crying for, for faith to be um, resigned to the private sphere of our lives. It's fine, you can be a Christian, just be one quietly, right? Do it in your homes, do it in your pews, fine, but don't bring that into the public square. What, what kind of view of that is, how are they viewing the Lordship of Christ? You see, they, they, they think he has this shrunken domain, <laughs> like it's some kind of hobby that we're practicing, and so it makes sense that, yeah, we would, we would keep him to those domains of life if he weren't Lord of the universe, but because he is, we don't live a compartmentalized life because he's Lord of all of it, and all of it's for him. But this is the danger of our own hearts, isn't it? To compartmentalize our faith. I've talked to a lot of people who have a place for God in their life, and sometimes it's a crisis counselor or like a bail bondsman, you know? He's the one to bail me out when I need it. He's the Hail Mary of help. Others might be willing to trust him enough with a few areas of their lives, kind of delegate to him. Sure, there's a sin and guilt thing. I need forgiveness. And so, yes, that needs to be something he's involved in. Or maybe there's a really difficult thing like a financial hardship or a relationship that you just don't know what to do with. And so you bring him into that. 
You see, what that's doing is compartmentalizing the lordship of Christ. And we see this in the scriptures. And actually, if we go to the next um, few, if you, if you think this is kind of the compartmentalized life. If I just want Christ to be transforming my heart and I'll, I'll be involved in church a little bit, you know, because I grew up that way and it's kind of a thing I'm used to doing. But my job is my own and my income is my own. And my home, it's, it's complicated, and I'm not sure how those dots connect. And in the community, I'm lost when it comes to sharing anything about this, and I'm just kind of quarantining those parts of my life off. You can see how diminished a life that's going to be as you try to practice a version of Christianity that was never intended. Or we connect with God, we we want them a part of our homes. We want our kids to be raised in the church and those kinds of things. And sure, we want to be good civic servants and we want to be in the community, but, but the whole church thing, the whole organized religion, the whole institutional stuff, just not into that. And my vocation, again, is, is kind of my own territory. It's my own stuff that I deal with. And this, if you think about different examples of people who did not exercise faith with Jesus. You can see how this works, right? The rich young ruler, Pharisees. You start reading the scripture and you start seeing where, where the blacked out areas of life are for them, or even for you, for me. So we're not meant to live a compartmentalized life. And the Christian life is an increasingly integrated one. And so we want the goal of our discipleship to be the entirety of our lives, not just settling for, we're asking you to make a few commitments in a certain compartment, you know. That's not what we're after here at Redemption Hill. So, let's talk about one third, one final and third aspect of this. How do we see a case for this in all of life? We see that he's Lord of all. We see that the Christian life is meant to be integrated. It's really all or nothing. And finally, we have this advantage of fast-forwarding in our lives to the time when Jesus will return and we will face him and he will judge us in a certain way. He has defined what a well-lived life is. And so when we meet him in glory, we will be accountable to him for his explanation of a well-lived life. And fortunately, God hasn't kept this to himself, but he's communicated this in his word. Maybe another way to ask this is, how do I make sure I don't get to the end of my life and face the Lord of the universe and not know what he wanted from me? It's a good question. I can remember I had a couple different jobs which had very different um, review processes, okay? I was a security guard for a while. I have that badge of honor in my life. And uh, it was a good job, though, and it was a, kind of a good deal, but I had no idea what the expectations were. Zero. <laughs> so I went into my first review kind of thinking, oh, I'm probably doing pretty good. And lay out, they lay out this, like, 10-step rubric for how well you're doing. And never seen this thing in my life, never heard a word about it. No idea. <laughs> And it didn't do all that well, actually, unfortunately. And I had a different job. I worked in the credit union for a while, but they were just over-the-top communicators about everything. Here's what we expect. Here's what we want. Here's what we desire. 
And so I went into that review with some understanding of what the expectations were. And so, not surprisingly, because I knew, I did a lot better. So you just think about life in those terms. We are going to meet the Lord of the universe face to face. And we will explain our lives to him. Now, I'm not talking about the judgment scene where God's determining whether or not we uh, are with him for eternity or, or in hell for eternity. There's one criteria for that determination, right? And that's how we repented of our sin and trusted in Christ. That is not what I'm talking about. He's not sifting through our resume to see if we're good enough to do that or not. It's solely by grace through faith. But I'm talking about the judgment that we'll, we will face when God's children go before their Heavenly Father. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, Paul says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is this real sense of stewardship that we see in the New Testament, that each of us are accountable to him for various things, and mostly it's things that are connected to his glory. So as we think about these five areas, those five circles or shapes around the Lordship of Christ, let's embrace God's idea for what a well-lived life is by looking at how that judgment is going to go in each of those areas. It's kind of like he's given us the answer key ahead of time. You ever have a teacher that did that? And said, this might be on the quiz or might not. And then, you know what I mean? And kind of laid it out there for us. God's been really generous to us. He's saying, here's a well-lived life. Here's what you will account for. He'll inspect our hearts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, with a lot of guts in his voice, he says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you, Corinthian church, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And each one will receive his commendation from God. Romans 14, 22 to 23. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Speaking of the convictions and personal opinion. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but, listen to this, to please God who tests our hearts. Why we do things matters to God. And why we do things, he'll ask us about. And serving others and all that we're doing. He will assess not only our hearts, but he will assess our homes. Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 4 is a picture of how families operate in God's kingdom. And if you remember husband and wife with this living, breathing demonstration 
of Christ's relationship to his church. Parenting is to be done and children are to be obeying in the Lord, right? So he has attached his glory to these practices in the home so that there will be accountability for them to him. He will assess our service to his bride, the church. Leaders will be accountable in ways. Teachers, rightly handling scripture. The elders of redemption will give an account for the souls of the people who are at Redemption Hill Church. That's something that we're mindful of, that we think about. God has given to each of you a responsibility in the body by giving you a gift that you are to steward over. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So both leaders and members are entrusted with something to help build Christ's church. And how we leverage those gifts for his glory will be a matter of discussion. We cannot love Jesus and be indifferent to his church. So he will assess our service to his bride. He will assess our faithfulness in our communities even. There's preordained works that we're walking in. We've been trusted with sharing the gospel. We're to be salt and light so that the Father is glorified. We're to have conduct that's honorable so that people who don't honor him will have reason to. We're to be prepared to give a defense for the thing that we believe, the gospel that we believe. Even our faithfulness in our communities will be something he looks at. Lastly, he'll assess our faithfulness even in our vocation. You see what this does to something like your day-to-day grind? To know that the Lord of the universe cares about these things? Listen to Ephesians 6. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Why? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Colossians 3 says the same thing. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your job, your job that you hate or enjoy or love matters to God. Do you see how these things Now, by looking at at how Christ will assess the well-lived life ahead of time changes the way that we live now. Now, this this kind of stuff and these discussions and these pictures and this stuff, we're excited about. I don't know if you are, but, but to think that the way that the church is supposed to operate is to empower people to live ordinary life under under the lordship of Jesus Christ for his glory is an exciting thing because it means that that Christ has the ability to transform everywhere you go. The home that you feel like is irredeemable, right? Like my kids, like, Lord, just protect them. I don't know what is going on. I don't know how to steer them. Or your marriage that feels hopeless or your job that feels mundane or the church when the sermons aren't always that good and you don't like the singing. You see, all this stuff can be redeemed, can be, can be under the lordship of Christ, can bring pleasure to him if we approach this in a certain way. 
So maybe you're excited. Maybe some dots are connecting for you today and you realize like, your job matters to God. Your daily life matters to him. Maybe you're convicted. Maybe you prefer compartmentalized Christianity because <laughs> it's your way of kind of controlling how things go. You like having a few things that are off limits. Maybe you're overwhelmed like Jesus is the Lord of the universe and every aspect of my life is going to be a matter of discussion before him and holy cow, I haven't thought about this before. <laughs> it might be you. So what I want to do is just revisit in, in applying these things a word of encouragement from God in each of these and then we'll wrap up. So first we consider that Jesus is Lord over all and so he's Lord over every aspect of our lives and we follow him everywhere in every way and then so... This might be prodding us to ask, how do we identify Jesus? Is he the authority over all things? Is that an important part of your understanding? Is the Jesus of Revelation in the mix in your mind when you consider the Lord? This might create some godly fear in you, and that's appropriate. Don't resist that. Jesus, who washes feet, he also slays Satan with the word right? It's part of who he is. But because he has all authority, it means we can listen to other things that he says with an equal sense of submission and interest. So hear the all authoritative ones say, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Or, and for those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Unbreakable chain of salvation. Or Jesus in Matthew 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that you reveal things to little children like me. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, the all-authoritative one says things like that, too. He says, surely I am coming soon. So yes, he is Lord of all. Yes, he has commanded us to make disciples of all nations. And that same authoritative one says he will be with us. God is at work in us. It's simpler than you think. My yoke is light. Number two, we said that following Jesus in all of life is an integrated type of lifestyle. And so you might be thinking about how to discern the will of God in a certain area of your life. Basically looking at that image, thinking what connections are lacking and how might the Spirit of God help sanctify an area of your life that you thought was secular but now realize is not. Maybe some of you are intentionally walling Jesus off from certain aspects of who you are or how you live, and you know that you're trying to do that. 
Maybe you're sitting there thinking, how in the world can I keep all this straight? Every area of my life, really? How is it possible to observe all that Jesus commanded? Hear his encouragement from John chapter 14. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, speaking to the apostles while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Imagine the terror of being an apostle, hearing Jesus say, I am leaving. (laughs) And for him to say, no, 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 peace is still possible. I know it sounds intimidating to observe all that I've commanded you and to remember all these things, but the Holy Spirit himself will be with you. We have the Holy Spirit. God is near to help us. He hasn't say, observe this list and good luck. I'm going to give you 100 people in Santa Rosa, some of whom have a clue, some of whom don't. Like, have at it. We have the Holy Spirit. Lastly, in considering his judgment of his children, maybe you're challenged to consider that Christ's priorities for a well-lived life might be lacking or might be weak in certain areas in your life, how does that coming day shape how you live? In those five areas, which which do you think needs the most attention? Which is the strongest that the Holy Spirit might be prodding you to help others to be strengthened in? You might be thinking, how can we possibly know how to live in a way that's pleasing to God? Listen to the incredible description of the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We not only have the Holy Spirit, but we have his word. The living word of God to us, we have. And it's comprehensive, and he says that this thing alone is able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to fully equip us and completely uh, mature us. That's incredible. And so with the assuring words of the all-authoritative one, with the reminder that the Holy Spirit is near to us, and with this book being the voice of God to us, church, we can live lives that are an integrated, holistic, all of life, every day, kind of following Jesus. We can do that because of what he's done. Sufficient is the word of God applied by the spirit of God to do the will of God in all of life. This is good news. We'll talk more about this in the days to come, but for now, we wanted to lay a foundation for that and and trust our God to lead us in following him and what it means to to obey Jesus and love him and abide in him in all of life. Let's pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we um, here this morning have heard a lot of your words to us. And Father, we see the all-encompassing scope of what you are calling us to. 
And God, as, as we hear the totality of your call, we want to thank you for claiming us and claiming our lives in that way. God, this is not something that, that some kind of obligation that our head is down and our, our guilty consciences are just dragging around on the ground. These are ways that you intend to bring us life and to give us grace and to show us your glory. This is an invitation to surrender to you and to experience your glory in a new way. And God, I pray as a church we take advantage of that invitation. We want to do your will. We want to, we want to follow you in the day-to-day -day course of our life and learn how to do that and learn how to encourage one another in that. And so, Father, we pray for your encouragement. We pray for your courage and your strength. As we see the all-encompassing call of Christ, help us to see at the same time the glory and the willingness of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. To know that the clarity of your word will be sufficient and will be enough. And if God, if we were taken from this place and all we had was the word of God and the spirit of God and the example of Jesus, that it would be enough. God, we need your help. We need specifics. We don't have this laid out in a way that is just step one through 50. We want to follow you in this as a church and as elders. And God, I pray that, our, that people of redemption would sincerely pray earnestly for this direction, for a heart of submission and willingness. God, to embrace the totality of your call. We, just, we don't want to race around and waste our lives. So would you help us to focus, help us to be centered on Jesus and to, to hear his voice first and most. Radicalize us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.